Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Deep in History. This is your co-host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined by Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson, as usual. Hello, Monsignor Steenson. Ave, you noble Celt, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I fit into that category or not, but uh, but uh, uh, it's good to... For you to join us and everyone, this, we think, is our last episode of our discussion on Irenaeus. Uh, Monsignor entitled this episode as the, well, what was your title for this episode, Monsignor? Um, Well, I put down as the title, um, I put it down as um, Irenical Irenaeus, the Peacemaker. Okay. And... The reason why is because uh, after one of the fragments that we're going to be looking at today um, was quoted by Eusebius of Caesarea, the first church historian, and he commented at the end of it. He said uh, in in uh, Church History Book Five, Chapter Twenty Four, he says um, the same Irenaeus as one whose character answered so well to his name was be, was in this way a peacemaker. Um, uh, so Irenaeus, Irenic, um, peacemaker, Irenic cost, did, did you mention that? Um, that's the root of his name, is peace. Yeah, and that affirms what I've come to see as a significance of Irenaeus uh, in the midst of these early writers in the history of the church. Now, those of you who've been following along with this, here we did it for an entire year, Monsignor. Um, uh, I know, I'm no patristic scholar, and so I, I have to be careful when I extend my opinions. But what I've come to appreciate about Irenaeus, and we're going to see it in one of the fragments today, is an emphasis on living out the the gospel as proclaimed by Christ, which, and then affirmed by the epistle writers about the importance of, as, Ephesians, as Paul says in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, holding that which is true, holding on to the apostolic deposit of faith, and, and, and a part of that is living together in love, but recognizing that in the midst of that, there can be diversity. There can be diversity. And he talks about that in fragment three that we're going to look at mm-hmm. today, is about this diversity. And the reason, to me, I find Irenaeus important is that within the decades that follow Irenaeus, in my mind, this is where the battles come in the church when people begin arguing over words and over concepts and and literally being at each other's throats over 
ideas and philosophies that I would have thought if Irenaeus would have still been around, he would have been saying, like he says in fragment three, guys, we, we, we need to allow diversity within our midst as we hold true to the deposit of faith that we've received from the elders, from the pupils of the apostles, as he calls them. Uh, and that's, to me, a part of that fragment. So what we're going to do today, everybody, is we're done with Against Heresies. We finished that last week. But in Keeble's translation, at the end of that, he includes a long list of fragments from, supposed fragments from letters written by Irenaeus. He calls it Fragments of the Lost Works of St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon. And he lists in his collection, um, well, I... A bunch, a whole bunch of them. I don't get the number here, uh, but it's about 30, 40 pages of them. So, first of all, Monsignor, I wanted to ask you, what is significant, first of all, why spend some time on the fragments? Okay, well, the, the three fragments that are accepted um, by everybody as uh, legitimate are those first three because they were the ones that were quoted by Saint Ir- I mean by Eusebius of Caesarea. Yep. Um, so one one seventy five or so for Irenaeus and Eusebius is writing his church history around, you know, the three twenties or something like that. So it's a very, it's an early witness to it. Over the there were many different um, fragments as you can see from the back of our book that were assembled. Um, some of them have been demonstrated to be not authentic. Others probably are, but, um, you know, they're, I think it, well, Johannes Quaston, the petrologist, suggested that what you're seeing with some of those is probably his sermon notes. <laughs> so they, were, they were probably things from sermons that he had preached, um, but, but not actual works as such. Okay. And... Anyway, um, so the the one the three that we can be pretty um, assured of are one, two, and three, and probably also Marcus. Uh, I want to refer to paragraph or uh, fragment D, small letter D, is in delta on page five sixty because it goes with the Florinus stuff. Okay, um, and that's probably a, a legitimate fragment also. So essentially, what we're doing, if if you will, is we're jumping from Against Heresies by Irenaeus, we're jumping into Eusebius's ecclesiastical history is really what we're doing. That's right, because, yeah. And, and what you're also saying is that the patrologists seem to trust Eusebius over these other people that were passing along fragments. Right, yeah, because these other collections are later they, they go much later and so um, well, if you're looking for something that is close to the time of Saint Irenaeus Eusebius is definitely the one to to look to all right um, so if we're going to jump into Eusebius I mean to Irenaeus I thought before we jumped into the fragments per se that um, I wanted to go to an earlier quote because um, 
uh, Eusebius mentions Irenaeus a number of times throughout, and we, you know, we're not going to go into it. But I wanted to just take one quote in which he's referring to Irenaeus. He's not quoting mm-hmm. Irenaeus completely, but he's referring. And I thought I want to throw this back at you, Monsignor, because it deals with something we talked about just in the last two weeks. So we're, we're in Eusebius's history. Book 3, chapter 39. Chapter 39. 39. Okay. So if you want to find that, and we're going to look. Book 3, 39. Okay. Okay. And it's, here's what he says. Um, he says, the same writer adduces other accounts as though they came to him from unwritten tradition, and some strange parables and teachings of the Savior, and some other more mythical accounts. Now, he's talking about somebody else. Among them, he says that there will be a millennium after the resurrection of the dead when the kingdom of Christ will be set up in material form on this earth. I suppose that he got these notions by a perverse reading of the apostolic accounts, not realizing that they had spoken mystically and symbolically. For he was a man of very little intelligence, as is clear from his books. But he is responsible for the fact that so many Christian writers after him held the same opinion, relying on his antiquity. For instance, Irenaeus, and whoever else appears to have held the same views. Now, the person he's talking about, I'm pretty sure, is Papias. It's Papias, right. So he's, he doesn't have a high view of Papias. No. No, I've, somebody had, I can remember somebody talked about Papias being like the, the equivalent of a modern-day blogger. He just... <laughs> <laughs> he just he had he was the gossip columnist of the early church. <laughs> and so, so he's see, they went like uh, Irenaeus would not agree with that of course but um but what we're seeing here is that Eusebius has a different view of the millennia than Irenaeus and discounts this view that Irenaeus had passed on saying that Irenaeus picked it up from Papias. Right. Right. That's right. So my question for you is, by the time we get to Eusebius, and you might want to tell the audience, just in case, a a little bit more about Eusebius and when he wrote, by the time we get to Eusebius, he is speaking without hesitancy that the view that Irenaeus held has now been accepted as false. That's right. Um, And it's important, I think, there's been a sea change in the life of the church. Irenaeus uh, lived in the time of persecution. Eusebius is writing after the empire has become Christian. And and Eusebius basically is, um, oh gosh, I remember we used to call Eusebius the first (laughs) post-millennialist in the church because he worked out a theory of the millennium or his interpretation is we are now living in the millennium with the advent of Constantine. Constantine is um, 
is a partner with Jesus Christ. He co-rules with Christ. Um, I mean, he, some of his stuff is over the top, honestly. He wrote, didn't he write the first biography of Constantine? Yeah, from a, Life from of Christ- Constantine. That's uh-huh. right, that's right. Yeah. So he would he would not agree, obviously, with Irenaeus and these earlier um, writers about the millennium because he's, he believed it already had arrived with the coming of the first Christian emperor. Well, and Augustine would have agreed on to some extent. Yeah, that Augustine's kind of a moderating. Millennium has arrived. We're in the millennium, yeah. he would say. Yeah. That's what the basically the Catholic Church affirms in the catechism. But Irenae, but Augustine wouldn't say it came in with Constantine. That's correct. No, because, you know, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth, they're never going to meet, you know. Yeah, yeah. They're totally two different things. Yeah. So yeah. so we're, we're, when we look through Eusebius, we're looking through lenses that the church doesn't completely agree with. Uh, we have to recognize whenever we... That's correct. Take his opinions about things. But the three fragments that we're going to look at that are in the back of Keeble, fragments one, two, three, in Keeble's numbering, come right out of Eusebius. So from that extent, at the time, we, as, we can assume that Eusebius had availability of the full copies of these letters. I think so, yeah. But he only quotes parts, and then that's all we have left. We don't have, uh, unless they're hidden away in the Vatican mu- uh, Museum, <laughs> right? That... Or more, like, more likely than not in some old monastery. <laughs> push behind the book, push behind a lot of books or something. Which is going to be interesting when we talk about the demonstration later. Is something yes. hidden away. We'll get to that. All right, yeah. so let's... Um, Okay, Monsignor, let's talk about the the three fragments then that you'd like okay. to point out. Okay. Okay. Well, um, the first one is just a little fragment um, that uh, that Eusebius quote. It's on. We're now on page five hundred and thirty nine. Here, um, it comes from his work on the Ogdoad. Um, it's. This is basically his second writing that we have. The second fragment here is earlier than the first fragment. Okay. It's uh, a work that he wrote to Florinus, who was a priest in Rome. And we'll see in the second fragment, this Florinus was one of his colleagues. Uh, he knew him. He knew him um, back in Asia Minor, in Smyrna. Um, and so... This is a guy that started out on the apostolic team and he got all screwed up and he went in a Gnostic direction, Florinus did. Okay. So that's what we're getting here. And Eusebius loved this first quote, the first fragment. Um, He he said it was just too good not to put in there because um, at the end of this, at at the end of this work on the Ogdoad, Basically, what St. Irenaeus is telling Florinus is, hey, look, pal, um, if, you try to, if you try to copy my book, uh, don't do it in this way that you obviously took the letters of John and the other early apostolic writings and changed them. 
<laughs> I mean, that's just, he says, you know, you just copy it just as it is. And uh, Eusebius thought this was a great, delightful point that um, those people that make their living in copying manuscripts and texts need to be sure that they get it right and not change things. Which, that's, that's the cardinal sin, well, which changing a text. Which reminds us of that Irenaeus himself referred to that. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, we talked about where he talks about those who make mistakes accidentally, they'll be forgiven. But yeah. the ones that, that purposefully shift things uh, will be held accountable. He wasn't, in the context, referring to um, his own writings. He was really, if I remember right, and I'm looking, trying to find again, he was really referring to uh, the transcribers of the book of Revelation. Yeah, that's right. That's what he was talking of. Um, you know, though it's, you have to believe this is a problem that continues today because itchy fingers don't like a certain passage in the scripture, maybe at Paul on human sexuality, and they want to just monkey around with the text a little bit to make it vaguer. Yeah, yeah. Same, well, same thing going on. Irenaeus, as bad as things might have been, he would never imagine how bad it gets once the internet is invented. Yeah. Because That's floating right. by the bazillions are people pulling statements out of context to uh, destroy right. people's character. And that's just uh, running yeah. rampant. We see it on the news. We see it everywhere. So that's what the first thing is about. Um, and he says, yeah, thou shalt likewise copy this abjuration and put it in thy transcript. He ends on that little quote. <laughs> that's right. That's almost like, you know, a modern book has the copyright and the words about the copyright. It's like an ancient copyright here. <laughs> I love that. It was wonderful. Anyway, Eusebius, uh, who quotes this in his um, uh, book five, uh, chapter 20, uh, section two in the church history, loved, he loved this one. He thought this was, um, of course, Eusebius has spent a lot of time now working with ancient texts to write his church history, and um, he much appreciated that. All right. In, it's in um, it's in the second fra fragment that we really get into yep. um, the the this this is absolutely fascinating, Marcus. I hope we can read the whole thing. Well, why don't you want me to read it and then yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll go ahead and do, do it that because uh, you're the one you that know. is going to add the the good meat to it. I'll do the reading. Um, these doctrines, Florinus, to speak sparingly, are of no sound mind. These doctrines are dissonant to the church and invest with the deepest impiety those who assent to them. Those doctrines, not even the heretics who are without the church, ever durst set forth. These doctrines, the elders which were before us, who were pupils to the apostles, delivered not unto thee. For I saw thee when I was yet a child in lower Asia with Polycarp, and thou wert a stately in stately position in the royal palace and studying to prove thee to him. For I recall rather what happened then, then than what are more recent. For what we learnt from our very childhood 
grow on with our soul and are a part of it. Now, just pause there for a second, Monsignor, maybe comment. Again, you had said who these doctrines, he doesn't, at this point, we don't, we don't have the identification of these doctrines he's talking about. Eusebius didn't give us that. He just jumped right into this letter. And then he's referring back to, as you said, a time when Florinus um, and, Poly- and, and Irenaeus were sitting at the feet yeah, so this is just this is an unbelievable moment here to see this. And what apparently happened with Florinus is that um, he couldn't solve the problem of evil. And mm. and so he basically adopted the Gnostic argument that a good God could not create evil. A good God wouldn't have evil in his world. So therefore, the creator God of this world could not be the true father. Um, so he was basically, you know, heading in a, in a Gnostic direction over this question of, of, of evil. And, uh, and this is what we'll see in this fragment is that's the burden that, um, that's the burden that Irenaeus has here to make, to show that, um, that the God who is the good creator, you cannot put evil on his account. Um, you know, basically the idea that it's human freedom and jealousy. It's the, it's the abuse that was given by the lower creatures um, that, that brought evil in. But you can't lay that on God's account. Now, he is speaking of Polycarp in the past tense. Right. So when he writes this, he is writing within how many years of Polycarp's martyrdom? Maybe 20, 25. So that's, you have to hear that behind his memory of Polycarp. Yeah. Uh, you know, we think of the martyrs today and we're thinking back thousands of years, but 20 years. The very person that he and Florinus uh, were at his feet listening to him because Polycarp could talk about, and we're going to see that, John and the other apostles. He's been martyred. And so Irenaeus goes on, so that I, so he's talking about, he, he can remember that better than anything now. He, he's talking about that, the image. I love that. I love that, don't we? We. This is the beginning of of um, of Alzheimer's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we can recollect things in our childhood better than we can last what week, happened the last yeah. ten minutes. Yeah, you know? there we are. But, and uh, no, I thought I thought that was one. And by the way, just I want one other note. Um, when when um, he writes about how um, I saw you. I saw you, Florinus. Um, you were in a stately position in the royal palace mm. and studying to approve the to him. So basically, Florinus must have been working as a staff member in the imperial, in the government offices. And he was, well, let me just put it in the vernacular. Um, Irenaeus calls Florinus a spoiled brat. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's what he remembers of, a spoiled brat who is trying to curry favor with the apostle, so, with, with Polycarp. So the know. phrase, studying to prove thee to him, is not to be taken in a positive slant. No. No, that's not how I read it anyway, no. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, then we'll go on. So he says, so then, I can even tell the place where the blessed Polycarp used to sit and converse and his goings forth and comings in and the manner of his life and the form of his body and discourses that he used to make to the people and his intercourse with John, how he would tell of it and and that with the rest of those who had seen the Lord, and how he would recount their words. Uh, again, pause there. So, again, when I was thinking about that, you know, I wonder if, was Irenaeus present at the martyrdom? No, I don't think so. He would have been in Lyon by then, I would think. I'm not sure, though. Because I've tried... It's probably around 260 to 260, I mean, 160 to 165, yeah. where that happened. Um, yeah, yeah. So I just wondered if the images... It would have been after, after, you know, Polycarp made a trip to Rome to see the Pope. And so it must have happened pretty shortly after that. After that. Okay. Yeah. But then again, it affirms that not only did Polycarp see John from a distance but had dialogue with John, the apostle, yeah, and with the rest of those who had seen the Lord. So there, there's that intimacy we have between Irenaeus and Polycarp and John and the rest of the apostles. And concerning the Lord, what things they were which he had heard from them, both as to his mighty works and his teaching— as Polycarp, having received them from the eyewitnesses of the life of the word, used to recount them consonantly to the scriptures. Now, what do you, how do you understand what he says there? Um, as Polycarp, having received them from the eyewitnesses of the life of the word, used to recount them consonantly to the scriptures. I wonder if that is what, that's basically been Irenaeus's life's burden is to take apostolic teaching and show how it's consonant with the prophecies in the Old Testament. Okay. Because when he uses the word scriptures here, we should probably hear him talking about Old Testament texts at that point. This morning when I was doing my morning scripture reading devotions, it actually struck me this morning. Why do I do it this way? I have a way I do it. And when I try and break away and do it a different way, I eventually gravitate back to the way I've done it for 40-some years. Even becoming a Catholic, I still do it the way I've always done it. Why did I do it that way? Because that's the way I was taught by a Pastor Tom uh -huh. back in the mid-70s. And I've been doing it that way ever since. Irenaeus, the way he, the way he takes the words of Christ and shows them in Scripture, what you're saying is that his technique he got from Polycarp. 
That's what I think that's how yeah. I would read this. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. These things did I then too, by the mercy of God, which was upon me here diligently, noting them not on paper, but in my own heart, and ever by the grace of God do I ruminate them aright. And I can protest before God that if the blessed and apostolic elder had heard any such thing, he would have cried out and stopped his ears. And as he was wont, saying, O good God, unto what times hast thou reserved me that I should endure these things, would have fled even the place where sitting and standing he had heard such words." And from his epistles, too, which he used to write either to the neighboring churches confirming them or to any of the brethren admonishing them and urging them, can this be shown? I love that visual image. Isn't it wonderful? (laughs) (laughs) And remember, Irenaeus talked about how John got out of the bathhouse because Marcus showed up. Serinthus. Serinthus. Serinthus, yeah. And, And Polycarp did the same with Marcion. Um, so, you know, yeah. I just love, and this explanation of why did you make me live in a time like this? <laughs> yeah. As I read that, I could have, I was even thinking there might be some people today <laughs> quoting that very thing. Oh, good God, unto what times hast thou reserved me that I should endure these things? As we look at what's happening in the news and in the politics and even in the church at our time. And Marcus, I just wish and pray that the bishops would show something of that today. You know, I think that would be such an immense encouragement to the faithful if their leaders would would behave like Polycarp. I'm not putting up. I can't stand to be in the room with you. He, he would have cried out and stopped his ears, you know, and would have fled the place. Yes. And yet, not only today in the church when we hear priests and even some bishops and even some cardinals promoting ideas, moral ideas that are not in line with the teaching of the church— and not only do we see the bishops not showing this kind of reaction, but they continue to hire these men and put them in positions of power. Yeah. I, it's, it's discouraging. Oh, it's discouraging. It is. So, you know, and um, just for people that like to follow and make connections here, uh, this second fragment that we've read comes from Eusebius's Church History, Book 5, Chapter 20, Section 3 through 8. All right. I did notice in a footnote that Keeble says, See Dr. Pusey's The Real Presence, The Doctrine of the Ancient Church. Did you notice that? Yeah. And I don't, I'm not sure what this is all, what that's all about. I'm not familiar with the work. and Yeah, I'm not either, although I'd love to find a copy of it, because Pusey would have been a part of that in, in, inner circle with Newman. and That's right, yeah. And Pusey didn't become Catholic, but, but he and Newman were continued to correspond 
in, in a debate manner often for the, I don't know, for the rest of their lives. I mean, I know they did for a long time, but I would love to have to be able to read Dr. Pusey's argument about the real presence, the doctrine of the ancient church, because if I remember right, the 39 articles say an Anglican can't believe in the real presence. Yeah. That's right. And it could have been because, yeah, the Oxford movement was, that was one of their principal things was to recover the, the early, do, the ancient doctrine of the Eucharist. Um, so I'm guessing this book <clears throat> footnoted, which would have been, you know, readily available when this book was first translation, um, yeah. was Pusey's way of arguing for the reality of the real presence in the Eucharist as an Anglican without becoming right. Catholic. Yes, that's exactly what it's doing, yeah. That's why that'd be a neat yeah. book to, to yeah. read, if you could, uh, to, to see I'll how look, many, how many know, Anglicans would enjoy that book. I'll try to see if there's a good link to it, and then I can put it up on, um, you, you know, our uh, website on that, so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so fragment three know, then. Well, before we jump to that, Marcus, please. I wonder if we can go go over to page 560. I just wanted to comment yes. about this okay. fragment D. All right. The top of 560, because this, this is the follow-up. Um, so early on now, or earlier on, um, well, Irenaeus is trying to argue with his old friend, Florinus, um, to basically call him back to the faith. And in, in fragment two, he's trying to shame him by, by this remembrance of Polycarp. But obviously it didn't work because Florinus went on to um, separate himself more and more from the church. And this fragment here, fragment D on page 560, this is um, from a, a fragment of a letter that he writes to the Bishop of Rome Victor about a priest named Florinus. So it's interesting. I just thought this was interesting because he's given up now on trying to persuade his old friend, and now he's calling on the Pope to discipline him. Um, now, since happily the writings of those who have come as far to us escape your notice, oh, by the way, Pope Victor, you know, one of your priests is writing this stuff. I tell you that you, for your dignity, may remove out of the way the writings which bring blame upon you, because he who wrote them boasts that he is one of you, and do harm to the many who, in their simplicity and without question, receive as from a priest this blasphemy against God. Rebuke also him who wrote these things, whereby he doth harm not only to those who are about him, whose mind is ready for blasphemy against God, but hurts our people likewise, who have through his writing conceived within themselves false notions about God. And it's fascinating. He's basically telling the Pope to step up to the plate and deal with one of your errant priests who's publishing heresy. Mm -hmm. Sounds kind of contemporary. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah, we won't mention any names. No, uh, I know. I know. It'd be we, fun to come up with a list of candidates. A list of we'll candidates, just... but of of people. <laughs> and then, in fact, the Irenaeus saying that there's this priest out here who's teaching false things who is claiming to be in your inner circle. 
claiming that you're affirming him. Reminds me recently of, uh, of, uh, of uh, an article I read criticizing a, another Catholic writer who was a, a well-known, a well-liked writer um, that many people read, but who's been passing along things that aren't exactly kosher. And then when that other, when the accused was defending himself, he said, but my books have the imprimatur. <laughs> my, my books have the imprimatur on the front, but my books have a long list of, of well-known people that affirm it. And the, the faithful Catholic who responded back says, the imprimatur isn't what it used to be. <laughs> Right, Monsignor? It isn't right. what it used yep. to be. And just because That's somebody right. gives an endorsement on the back of the book does not necessarily mean that he actually read the book. And we have that problem today happening all the time. I know it's true. I'm guilty but of it. <laughs> but this is just so it, it's fascinating to me that, that Irenaeus is calling on the Bishop of Rome to discipline one of his priests who is spreading heresy. Yeah. And I mean, how more contemporary does it get? Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the devil has <laughs> the same playbook that he uses throughout the history of the church. It's always there. And uh, uh, all right. Well, Monsignor, good. Excellent. Okay. Let's go back to fragment three then, which is also a very fascinating topic. Oh, indeed. indeed it is. <laughs> So give, a, if you would, a little background to this. All right. So now this is going to get a little complicated. Um, well, but you're going to help me get it even more complicated, Marcus. So That's what I'm good at. <laughs> so this is a letter that he would have written to Pope Victor in sometime in the 190s. And um, it's Eusebius preserved this in Book 5, Chapter 20, Sections 11 through 18. And... What's so fascinating about this letter, it's about the Easter controversy, about how do we determine the date of Easter. Um, and now we could take an hour just talking about the ins and outs of this, but I guess basically we've got two different traditions that arguably come from, one comes from John and one comes from Peter. Um, John's version says, we celebrate Easter always on the Feast of the Passover, the Jewish Feast of the Passover, which falls on the Jewish lunar month of Nisan, Nisan 14. That's why these people are called the Quarto Decimans, Latin for 14. So even if the even if East even if Nisan 14 falls on a Tuesday, that's the day we celebrate the Passover. That's to say we will celebrate Easter. And John says or, or Peter, the tradition that Peter claims is uh, it's got to be the Sunday nearest to that because we have to celebrate Easter on the Lord's Day as it originally was on that day that Christ, Christ was crucified on the eve of the Passover and, and, and then his body had to be taken down before the Passover started. That's, you know, that had to be... So he was basically then Easter falls on 
And we know that was on a Friday back then on, in the year 33 or whenever that was. So Jesus rose on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. And Peter says, that's what we have to keep going with. So it's always the Sunday nearest to that day, Nisan 14. And how we get to that is complicated. You need an astronomer to do that because um, yeah. it's got to be the, what is it, the, the first, it's the first Nisan start, so it's the first full moon after the spring equinox. That's Nisan 14. Yeah, this is complicated. Because, first of all, we have the Apostle Paul warning people, don't get caught up fighting over days and seasons and moons and Amen. clouds. And it, yeah. it's, no, don't, don't. They're not important. If you, if you do, you're falling back into Judaism. So it, those are things he argues in, in Romans. Don't go there. Don't go there. But it's interesting. If you think about the, the key celebrations of the church following the life of Christ. We've got Christmas. We've got um, uh, so his birth at Christmas. We have Epiphany, the announcement. We have his baptism, right? Mm -hmm. You might say, you might throw the transfiguration in there. Then we have the Thursday of the, which non-Catholics call Monday Thursday, but you have Holy Thursday, then you have mm -hmm. his death, crucifixion, and then you have his resurrection, and his ascension, and Pentecost, right? You have all those days. Right. Uh -huh. So the question is, what day do we celebrate? Christmas, Epiphany, Baptism, Transfiguration, Holy what? Thursday. Good what? Friday. Easter. Resurrection. I mean, ascension. Resurrection, ascension, and um, uh, Pentecost. On all those other days, we don't, we, we don't keep track of what day it was. Christmas, we don't know what day of the week it was. Epiphany, we don't know what day of the week it was. Baptism, we don't know the day. Of the week. So the day was important. But there's a reason why this Easter, there's another reason why the significance of that was important. Because it, in, it involved the change of something else significant in the church. Right, Monsignor? Okay, help me now. Take the next step for me. In other and words, jump in. why we worship on Sunday and not Saturday. Okay, yes. <laughs> the reason for that is because he rose on a Sunday. It is Sunday, that's right. So this issue of what day we celebrate Easter is connected with the argument for whether we worship on Saturday or Sunday. The reason I mention that, I just was recently reading a, a book written by a former Seventh-day Adventist who's now a Catholic, and she had a whole chapter giving the, the apologetic arguments 
to her former Seventh-day Adventists of why we should worship on Sunday and not Saturday. So if you're fighting for that, Easter becomes an issue. We don't, we, we don't worry about Pentecost. In fact, we just recently celebrated the Ascension, which, uh, yeah. which is Thursday, right? And some people, and, but in some places where it was transferred to Sunday, in my archdiocese it was here. In mine too. Yeah, yeah. It gets complicated. It, it, well, and it's interesting how Irenaeus says, you know, we can accept these this kind of diversity. Yeah. It's, it's not something to split over. I noticed when I was reading this, I, was it in this one? Um, or, yeah, in this one, the word diversity shows up a bunch of times. In fact, let me read it for those of you that don't have your books, Monsignor. I think it's worth reading. Yep. He says, not only respecting the day is the dispute, but also as to the manner itself of the fast. For some think that they ought to fast one day, others two, others even more, others 40. I mean, 40. I mean, that's something called Lent, isn't it? But the, yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they measure their day by the hours of day and night. And such the diversity of those who observe it, a diversity taking place not now in our time, but long before, in the time of those who were before us, they who did less exactly, as it seems, govern, having handed down their own simple and private habit to the succeeding generation. Now, Monsignor, before we go on, so he's, again, we got to remember behind this the idea that how do you know what's true? Well, you, you, you go to a church and of apostle. Mm -hmm. That's why he would point to Rome. That's why Tertullian would point to a church that can trace it back to an apostle. Those that came before us. And that's what he's talking about here. But he's saying that even amongst that, he's saying there was some diversity. And he's right. be, I think he's being a little tongue-in-cheek when he says, um, they who did, uh, uh, but long before in the time of those who were before us, they who did less exactly as it seems govern. Yes, there is some, there is tongue-in-cheek there. He's speaking in the honor, ironic voice because he's chiding the Pope. Yeah. Um, he goes on, and nonetheless, both all these were at peace, and we are at peace one with another. And the diversity of the fast commends the con concord of the faith. So different people have different fasting disciplines. And that's okay. A, I mean, that's a marvelous principle that that, that liturgical diversity um, it actually can be seen as a sign of the unity of the faith. Um, and we celebrate that today when you look at the different rites in the Catholic Church. I think there are more um, than 20 rites, 21 you know, rites in the church. Yeah. At this time, there were lots of different rites. There was no, well, they didn't even have the means to, to 
print and publish copies of the right for every church to follow as we, yeah. we do today. He goes on, and the elders before Soter, who were over the church, which you now rule, Anesitus, I mean, and Pius, and Hyginus, and Telesphorus, and Zistus, did neither themselves observe nor committed to their successors. So here we have the line of of bishops of Rome, right, Monsignor? That's who these were. That's right. Okay. Uh huh. So Soter is the one just before Victor. So he's he's taking us back to um, well, Anicetus became pope in 155. So he's basically covering that second half of the second century. Okay. And no less were they who did not keep it at peace with those of the parishes in which it was kept. Now, is this the first time in the history of the church that the word parish is used? <laughs> I'm not sure. To, I know how to answer that one. So. Yeah, I don't know how. We don't know how common it was, right, Monsignor? We don't know at right. what point the idea of, as we understand, a parish is, a, is an area. And he used that. Those of the parishes in which it was kept coming to them, albeit the observance was contrary to those who observed not, and never were any because of this put forth. Yes, the elders themselves who were before you, who themselves did not keep it, used to send the Eucharist to those of the parishes who observe it. Now, Monsignor, let's pause here for a second. Wasn't it common? They didn't have a lot of country churches with priests yet. There were, might have been gatherings of Christians, but they wouldn't have had priests separate from the city churches. But the bishop, when he celebrated the Eucharist, would send the Eucharist out to the folk, right? That's right, uh-huh. Which is what and Justin whether, Martyr talks about. Uh, and we're not, I'm not sure, I mean, it's kind of, it's a little vague about what he precisely means here, because... There was also a custom that St. Basil writes about where bishops would send um, basically Eucharistic bread as a gift to each other, mm -hmm. unconsecrated, but unconsecrated bread meant for the Eucharist. It's possible that um, yeah. that's that too. And when the blessed Polycarp was staying at Rome in the time of Anesitus, and they had little differences with one another on some other matters, Straightway they made peace, not caring to wrangle on this head. I love that statement. Okay, now that is what we call a zinger. <laughs> 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 he is really, he's really putting it to Pope Victor on this point. Your predecessor and my teacher, my master, yeah. they got on just fine on this subject. Pope Anicetus didn't make an issue of it, so why are you making an issue of it, Pope Victor? You know, the main reason that it hadn't become an issue yet is because publishing hadn't become, uh, we don't have uh, printing yet, like until the 15th century, right? So people right. weren't concerned about putting one calendar published out to everybody so they had to have the same Easter on that Sunday. They didn't worry about that yet. If you celebrated Easter on that day, that's okay. We're celebrating Easter, but if you did it on that day and you did it on that day, that, that wasn't a problem yet. 
No, no, they were getting along. They were getting on. Even when, you know, um, they were, they could share, they, you know, what he says here about sharing the Eucharist, um, even with those who are working on a different liturgical calendar. Yeah. So I'm being facetious here, but, you know, the Pope didn't act until the publisher down the road said, excuse me, but I got to get this to the printer tomorrow. Which day do I put it on? And so that's what forced him. Anyway, for neither could Anesitus persuade Polycarp not to keep in that with John, the disciple of our Lord, and the rest of the apostles with whom he lived. And he ever kept it. Not yet did Polycarp persuade Anesipus to observe it, who said that he ought to hold the custom of the elders who were before him. And these things being so, they communicated with one another, and in the church, Anesitus yielded the Eucharist to Polycarp out of reverence, that is, and they departed in peace from one another, both those who observed and those who observed not having the peace of the whole church. This is amazing. So, yeah, uh, two points I think I want to make here. One is, it's so obvious here that um, that Pope Victor has overstepped um, his authority. He was he was exercised. He was trying to impose on the whole church. Um, this discipline about when the date of when Easter would happen, um, and Eusebius talks about that in the in the where this text occurs. Um, so we're we're in um, what was that there here? We're in Eusebius five twenty eleven through eighteen. He talks a little bit about that, and then a little bit later on, Eusebius. So anyway, my point, the first point is that. Um, Irenaeus is saying, this is not an uh, appropriate exercise of, of papal, papal authority. You've overstepped the bounds here. And the second point I think um, I wanted to just say is that everything now changes 125 years later or so, 50 years later, when Eusebius is writing, because at the Council of Nicaea, they adopted the Petrine view of this matter, that it has to be on a Sunday. And uh, it's this is a text, you mentioned this text before, um, Eusebius's Life of the Emperor Constantine, yeah. um, book, book three, chapter 18. He, he is the letter that you see the letter that Constantine wrote after the Council of Nicaea to all the churches? He wrote it to all the bishops and basically saying, you know, the Council of Nicaea has now made this decision that Easter will be on one day. So this is the end of the Court of Decimans at this point. Easter is going to happen on this one day, and Constantine's argument is a little bit ragged here because he says, let us have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd. Yeah. So we're seeing, we're, we're seeing a real separation. Um, now the, the church is understood to be, you know, basically on its own. It, it doesn't have to depend on all these, all these customs. Um, you know, it's fascinating that when I think about converts to the church today, 
entering into a time of the church when for our lifetime, Catholics have been encouraged to understand ourselves as Semites. Our entire lifetime, there's been a real emphasis for us to recognize the connection of Christianity to our Jewish heritage. There's been a, a real strong emphasis on that. I, I'm not a great historian here, so I don't know what the emphasis, whether the emphasis came in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s uh, because of, of of the horrendous things that were done to the Jews in the 20th century wars that encouraged the church to really over, not in a negative sense, but to bring back and to help us yeah. appreciate that. That's how I kind of understand it too. And but but when I look at history, coming deep in history, I'm recognizing that for a very long period of the church, there's an awful lot of some of its anti-Semitism that strong, but there's also a distancing uh -huh. of Christianity from our Jewish roots. You know, we, we've washed our hands of that. Uh, all of our rites and rituals and things, we don't make those connections. Whereas today, when you pick up a book about the priesthood, it begins by arguing the connections in the Old Testament with modern priesthood. Ecclesiology, it's a cont continuity of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. We don't shy away from that, but it seems that for a, a big, long part of the history of the church, there was a shying away from that, as you just said, had many of its foundations from Constantine. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Right. That's right. And he, um, and I don't he, know if there's and, a... And if you will, here's the issue, one of the issues that was splitting. Do we follow the Jews through John with our celebration of the resurrection of Christ, or do we, or, or do we jettison ourselves from the Jewish background and follow Peter and celebrate on the Lord's Day? which is the reason we celebrate on Sunday and not Saturday because that's the Jewish. So we, right. we jettison yeah. all that. And we're, when we read this letter by Irenaeus, we're right at the cusp of that. We are. And, and again, the First Ecumenical Council has, has made the decision now that we're all on Sunday. 325. Yeah. Though what it... Now we have to deal with the the Gregorian calendar versus the Julian calendar. That's why the <laughs> Latin church and the Eastern church can't seem to agree on what the date is. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Kind of gets crazy. But, but I love, I just think the principle that Irenaeus is, is citing here, that we don't need to enforce uniformity in these things to have unity as Christian brothers. It is worth Two yeah. things come up in my mind then about this also. Number one, this idea that Irenaeus emphasizes all the way through, and that is the, the, the authority and the trustworthiness of the apostolic deposit of faith. That the foundational idea to that is taking seriously the promises of Christ that we read about in John chapters 14, 15, and 16 about the Holy Spirit coming to the apostles, 
to help them remember that which Christ taught them, to remember what's true and to pass it on, to hold that, and so that the purpose of the church is the guarding of that deposit. But the question is, what is it of that deposit that's infallibly true that we all must agree? And we recognize that a lot of things came down from the apostles. In fact, Aaron Atheum points out a few things that we never even heard of except in he says he heard it from an elder. Yeah. So do we are all those things passed on equally the same, or is there degrees of truth, mm. degrees of levels of truth? And what we're seeing here in this letters is that we've got two traditions concerning Easter as a part of the apostolic deposit of faith. One's coming from as modern scholars would say, the Johannine community and another one's coming from the Petrine community, and they're not the same. What do we do? And Irenaeus's argument, which we get from against heresy as well as this letter, is don't let this divide us. Don't let this divide us. Uh, it's almost like if we, if we receive two solidly contradictory messages, and I might be overstepping my bounds here, if we receive as a part of this two contradictory, maybe that in itself says that it's not that important. What's more important is unity. What's more important is charity. Okay. The second thing that, and I'm, I gotta be careful, you know, that's just my thought. Another thing that when I look at study of the liturgical renewals that particularly um, we're a part of the 20th century of the church, the whole liturgical movement. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I'm trying to think. Was it Jung? What What was the name of the the writer that wrote about the history of the liturgical movement? Not Jungman. Uh, I can't think of what his name was. But anyway, one of the issues that came up was when one looks at the authority of what one does in liturgy. What is the authority of the Pope to decide what we should do in liturgy? And that was a, an issue of contention in the 20th century concerning Latin Mass, the vernacular Mass. What do we do? What, to what extent can the liturgy be changed? And right today we have great division amongst Catholics over essentially over what the magisterium, even in union with the Pope, can decide over what changes might happen in the liturgy. Yeah. And again, you know, I it's just for us who are, you know, converts to the Catholic Church, so we've accepted the authority of the Pope. Right. But here's an example of a point where the Pope made a statement, tried to impose on the rest of the church this Easter date question, and he gets pushback from the bishops because Irenaeus wrote this fragment. This comes, he was speaking on behalf of the bishops of Gaul. So this is like the French Episcopal Conference. Um, is this where the phrase yeah. came from that he had the Gaul to do this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder. You no. had, now, you had, this is last week you had the wonderful point, Marcus, about how. 
Florinus was such a problem because he was trying to fluoridate the <laughs> waters in Rome. So I would say you're very creative. So, <laughs> hey, listen, everybody, we've we've talked, we've waxed eloquently for an hour, and uh, but we wanted to make this the last discussion on Irenaeus. Monsignor and I are going to take a little breather, and then we'll, we'll decide and probably come back with another series for Deep in History. But before we do that, there's one more document by Irenaeus. So if you need to pause and go use the facilities or get yourself another cup of your favorite beverage, uh, or you want to come back later, we're going to spend just a few moments talking about another important writing of Irenaeus called the demonstration of the apostolic preaching. And let me, before I ask you, Monsignor, to talk about this, just to let you all know, well, why do we need to worry about this? It's quoted at least four times in the catechism of the Catholic Church. That's right. That's, yeah. And Marcus is holding the, that's the first English translation of this work. And this is a more recent one from ancient Christian writers. Okay. I don't know if you can see that. And um, uh, this is this wonderful stuff, though. And we should, pay, before we do the break, point out that we only discovered, this text was only discovered um, in this century, or in the at the beginning of the 20th century, in 1904. So it's, we knew it, because Eusebius gave yeah. a title to it. Well, we're not going to so, take a break. We're just going to go on. We're letting. We're inviting them if they need to pause. But go on, Monsignor, okay. with that. Go on with, please. Okay. Because right. yeah, what, so, where where'd this come from? Because you mentioned earlier that if there's any other letters, they're probably hidden away in some library somewhere. Well, yeah. talk about this. Yeah, this is um, this one. I just just read one sentence from uh, from Johannes Quaston's Patrology. But that's one, by the way, if you want to spend some money and get a wonderful book on the <laughs> wonderful series on the Church Fathers, Johann Quaston's Patrology, four volumes, just fabulous yep. on this. But he says, um, besides the main work of Irenaeus against heresies, we possess another, the demonstration of the apostolic teaching. Um, but it's actually more properly called the demonstration of the apostolic preaching. Yeah. So yeah. scholars were never clear on it, but the word is from Kerugma, so preaching. Um, for a long time, not more than the title of this work was known, Eusebius uh, 526. But in 1904, the entire text was discovered in an Armenian version um, by, I can't even pronounce the name of the scholar, but um, so it's modern, it's recent, hmm. and it is, it's fascinating. When I read it, Marcus, I read it again last week. Um, yep. There's actually, for people that like audiobooks, it exists in audiobook fashion. Um, <laughs> what's fascinating about it is it's basically against heresies, but it's now in a much more compressed version. <laughs> it doesn't take a year to read it. Yeah, if um, you could go through against heresies and take out all the arguments directly against the Gnostics and just kind of pare it down to, well, what's the rule of faith that he's talking about? That's essentially what we have. In that's right, and he says in, in, in the demonstration, he says, you know, if you want to have 
fuller arguments against the Gnostics, go to my book Against Heresies. So um, this was meant to be a, a simpler version. And I, you know, Marcus, I'll just say a couple of words about it, if I might. Because right. um, I remember when I was a student um, taking my first patristics courses, uh, we were always taught that this was an early Christian catechesis. It's Now that has been adjusted by the scholars uh, as they've thought more and more about it. Um, the principal aim of this work is not catechetical, but it's apologetical. And and it's the same issues that he has in against heresies too. It really treats the whole question of the relationship between Christ and the prophets, patriarchs of the Old Testament and showing how it's all united. Um, so he the typically now this uh, is divided up into two sections. Um, the first section, which runs to uh, chapter 42, um, uh, speaks about um, the essential doctrines of the church as are witnessed to in the Old Testament texts. And, uh, and then in the second half, um, in chapter 42 uh, to the end, he, he specifically deals with how Christ is present throughout in the Old Testament texts and also in the teachings of the apostles and how it's all, it's all one truth, basically. That's, that's the burden he has here. There's, we're not going to go into detail like we did against heresies. We're just going to talk briefly and encourage you to read it. It's available. Um, you might even be able to find a PDF of it somewhere online. I'm not even sure, although it's so new. I, I think I think the one that you have would probably have a PDF version to it. Yeah, because yeah. I would think that the copyright is probably expired on that one. Yeah, this is the translation the and notes by Armitage Robinson, who's the the first person to do it in English. That's right. right. Yeah. Right. But what jumped out a couple things just to to point out that I. Um, I found, I'll just point one thing, and, and that is that I've grown to recognize over my life of Christianity and study and pastoral work and, and mission to recognize and I, I think about how much I've been involved in evangelization for most of my adult life, even though my my kind of evangelization is always over media. But but my point is, we, we we argue or discuss all the apologetics, and then how do you, the hermeneutics of understanding Scripture, the doctrines, the creeds, all those things, and it, maybe it's as I get older. I've become more and more and more and more convinced that the whole message of Christianity, of Scripture, is far more simple than we often want to focus on. And part of it might be because, for example, the whole covenantal way of understanding Scripture and salvation history, which I agree with, but it it, just, it can make it so complicated 
uh, all the different dispensations, the different periods, the different king, you know, all this, and that's all well and good. And it overshadows what I think is the underlying most simple theme in Scripture from Adam all the way through to the second coming. And it not only simplifies all of Scripture, but it comes down to what's important for you and I right now. And that is this idea that the early fathers talked about as the two ways. There's two ways. You're either with God or you ain't, to say the way the people down here in southern Ohio say it. You're either with God or you're not. And you, when, you, when you recognize that and, and you're looking for it in Scripture, you see it everywhere. Every psalm is about the two ways. Not just Psalm 1. They're all about the two ways. Every epistle is about the two ways. You got you to gotta put on the new man. Got to cast off the old, the two ways. And then after the New Testament, which is our Lord's teaching is about the two ways. And then you see it in the Didache, the two ways. You see it in the letter of Barnabas, specifically talking about the two ways. The reason I bring it up is that's what he begins with in the demonstration. Before he gets to anything, he says, um, that so shall it be fruitful to your own salvation, and you shall put to shame all who inculcate falsehood and bring with all confidence our sound and pure teaching to everyone who desires to understand it. For one is the way leading upwards for all who see, lightened with heavenly light, but many and dark and contrary are the ways of them that see not. This way leads to the kingdom of heaven, uniting man to God. But those ways bring down to death, separating man from God. Wherefore, it is needful for you and for all who care for their own salvation to make your course unswerving, firm, and sure by means of faith, that you falter not, nor be retarded and detained in material desires, nor turn aside and wander from the right. And he goes on. There's the two ways. The two ways. Well yeah. And that's why the church calls us to holiness. That's why Christ calls us to simplicity. You know, that's why you don't get caught up with the things of this world your focus is on. We're citizens of a different world. There's two ways. And the devil wants to make us get tempted to lie. Ah, there's 50-some gray areas. Or whatever that book was called. <laughs> yeah. There are lots of ways. There are lots of doors. No. No one can come to the Father but by me, Jesus said. You know, Marcus, in this long period we've been work, working through Irenaeus, it was interesting how he keep, I mean, he really, it was like a course in Old Testament study, you know, yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were in those texts, and he points out here in uh, the demonstration of the apostolic preaching at, in section 42, he, he, I just thought I'd read this, these, this short paragraph here, because okay. this is the basic, this is the basic argument he's making. Why, why did God cause all these prophecies to happen? And it was for our sake, basically. So 
um, this 42, uh, this last part of 42, that all these things would come to pass was foretold by the Spirit of God through the prophets, that those who served God in truth might firmly believe in them for what was quite impossible to our nature and therefore like to be little believed in by men, God caused to be announced in advance by the prophets that from the prediction made long beforehand, when at last the event took place, just as had been foretold, we might know that it was God who had revealed to us in advance our redemption. So if Jesus Christ just simply dropped in on us unannounced, it would have been much harder for us to grasp what the meaning of it all was. But because of um, the preparatory work God did through the prophets, this is makes it possible for us to more easily understand something that is so radically contrary to our understanding and experience. He, uh, he does emphasize all through this, he doesn't make a lot of comments about the Eucharist in this, no. which I found very interesting. Yeah, there's, not, there's really nothing here about that at all. Um, and I guess that's why, that's why I guess modern scholars have tried to have revised the estimate of this. This isn't a full catechesis. This is, this is directed much more specifically to the unity of revelation. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't um, talk about the church, yeah. the, the ecclesial structure of the church right. in here at all. But um, he does emphasize holiness, he emphasizes righteousness. He makes one statement right after what you talked about in paragraph 43. It'd be interesting how this could be misunderstood if taken out of context, but he says, So then we must believe God in all things, for in all things God is true. Just that statement. And I, when, when I hear that, it seems to me, when I think about all that Irenaeus has said, that in everything we do, we've got to keep God as the center. Everything. God. We've got, to, we've got to have our faith in him. For in all things, God is true. That's the, what's the word, canon, right? That yeah. means this, God in everything, God is the true north, right. if you will. Yeah. The canon of truth, Irenaeus called it. Marcus, the one other point I'd like to make on this, because I was yes. thinking about you. I was thinking about you when I read this. <laughs> one of those um, heretics are you talking about? No, you're <laughs> <laughs> No, this I think I think one of the most I th I'm just gonna go out and say it. I think Irenaeus is the most fascinating theologian on the question of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, I mean, you know, his, we talked about this when we were in the Against Heresies, how Adam and Eve were basically little children that needed to be trained, and they dropped out of school, and they never <laughs> finished their education. So that's why the teacher had to come. Uh, he picks up themes like that, especially in the early chapters in um, the demonstration of the apostolic preaching. And so, you know, in the story of creation, God gave man dominion over all of the 
beasts of the earth? Irenaeus says, well, that was his intention. But, you know, Adam and Eve were just little children when they came, so they needed to have been educated. <laughs> and nobody told the animals that they were their masters, so the animals never paid any attention to them. So there was always this <laughs> tension between humanity and the and the animal creation. Nobody told the lions that they aren't supposed to eat these people. Um, and uh, and and of course, with the fall fall of man, um, Adam and Eve never completed their education. And Irenaeus spends a number of pages on this thing about what they missed and what needs to happen in Christ. And I found this yeah. just mesmerizing to read this stuff. To me, once again, reading these early witnesses are things that we maybe take for granted, but they, they not everyone took them for granted then, at least no. emphasizing th things. And yeah. I'd like to point out one last thing from me, sure, from my side. Yeah. Well, no, you might have something to add to it. No, no, you'll have the last word here. But, so. uh, but as Americans, we often don't appreciate the idea of a king. <clears throat> Because of our heritage here in in in, a, in our land, and we don't always necessarily think. I think we Catholics do a better job than our separated brethren about recognizing Christ as King, um, and especially those that are looking forward to the coming kingdom. The millennial kingdom hasn't arrived yet. They look forward to it. But Augustine and others, even as you point out Eusebius in a different way, but point out the fact that the kingdom is now. And the point of that is it isn't just that someday Christ will reign as king. When is he king? He's now king. And Irenaeus makes that emphasis in paragraph 52 that Christ then, being Son of God before all the world, is with the Father. And being with the Father is also nigh and close and joined unto mankind, and is King of all, because the Father has subjected all things unto him, and Savior of them that believe on him, such things do the scriptures declare. I mean, he's Christ. He's Lord. He's Savior. He's King. And that's what it means to be a part of the church, is that uh, it's, it's not the fulfilled kingdom yet. That will come. Uh, come soon. All right, Monsignor, last thing I do want to ask you. I, we didn't mention it in the program, but as we close here, just to remind you all, why did we do this on Irenaeus? Because the guy that I'm doing it with here spoke up at a bishop's conference about Irenaeus. Yeah, that was that was before COVID. But um, when we last met, um, what happened was the Archbishop of Lyon had petitioned the Holy Father to declare Saint Irenaeus a doctor of the Church, and. Uh, the Holy See then wrote to all the Episcopal conferences asking, "Would you agree with?" Um, with the Archbishop of Lyon on this petition. So this was debated at the USCCB meeting and we 
I got up just to praise, say how important Eusebius was in the development of Catholic theology. Irenaeus. um, I mean, sorry, Eusebius, yeah. Irenaeus was, thank you. And what was what was marvelous about because sitting in the chair at the time was the president, our Cardinal Donardo, um, who is a patristic scholar, extraordinaire. Um, and he, I just love those. I mean, that we've developed a very close friendship over the years on the fathers. And he he took a voice vote, and he said um, at that point he said. This is the first time that, in my memory, that the USCCB has unanimously voted on anything. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate that it should be St. Irenaeus, the, the, the peacemaker. Oh, right. So where, where this petition stands, I don't, I don't know at this point. Um, it's really, I guess, up to the Pope now to decide whether he will make the declaration that you, that, um, he, that Irenaeus becomes right. a doctor of the church. Right. But, All right. Matthew, yeah. why don't you close us with prayer, if you would. I will, and um, I'll use the prayer for uh, the Feast of St. Irenaeus, which will fall on June 28th. Okay. O God, who called the bishop St. Irenaeus to confirm true doctrine and the peace of the church, grant, we pray, through his intercession that being renewed in faith and charity, we may always be intent on fostering unity and concord through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, first, thank you, Monsignor, for joining me this past year on studying this. It's been a joy to do this with you. And uh, all of you, thank you for following us through in this program. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, Monsignor and I might come on with a Q&A program to answer any of your questions about this. But we do ask you to keep a lookout because sometime in the near future, I hope that Monsignor and I can pick up another book from the past uh, so that we can talk about how important it is to be deep in history in our Catholic faith. So God bless you all. Look forward to be with you Thank again Thank you soon. so much. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you, Monsignor.